All right. Um, hey, everyone. Um, great to be here. My name is Johannes Alvarez Rivero. Um, the episode today is uh, Fair Admissions Part 2, a, a future Greatest Hits episode uh, discussing uh, the Fair Admissions uh, case uh, with Harvard University, uh, sort of a follow-up uh, to our first episode uh, where we discussed the, the previous cases regarding um, sort of discrimination in, in college admissions. So uh, I'm here with my uh, my co-host, Andy. Want to say hello? Sure. Hey, uh, it's good to be here again. I'm excited to actually kind of jump in. I felt like we had a lot to talk about last time. And so now we can actually talk about how all of that built up into now. So if you haven't listened to the cases that brought us here, it's going to be really important to kind of see where this goes because we're going to be referencing some cases. So, um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, no, it's definitely a, uh, a super complex issue. And, and with our limited time, uh, it's hard to get everything in, but but we're definitely going to do our best. Um, so just to to give us a little of a brief overview on, on some background information, Andy, do you want to uh, take us off? Right. So if we understand anything about the idea, so so when we think about the case totally, we're thinking of uh, students for fair admissions versus Harvard. That's that's kind of the the case name that we think of when we're talking about this case. And the whole idea behind it, the whole idea behind all of this, and the reason why I think we need to actually talk about it is that this was the case decided last summer that basically told us that uh, race-based admissions, race admit accepting students for admissions based on race is no longer allowed. Um, and so part of the problem was uh, the Students for Fair Admissions came to the Supreme Court saying that uh, Harvard and UNC, this was a case that was kind of bundled together. We have the University of North Carolina and Harvard, both with this argument that um, the Except the admissions process uh, and using race as a tool for admitting students into um, their institutions was backwards in terms of equal protection. And when we're talking about the equal protection clause. So before we can jump in and talk about what did the court actually decide when we're talking about admissions processes and even using um, race as a consideration, we have to understand how the admissions process actually worked. So uh, the cases are the the sources for what I'm pulling out of right now. Uh, there is a really great explanation of the admissions process from the 5-4 podcast. Um, and also the Harvard Crimson kind of explains into detail how does the Harvard admissions process actually work. So I'm kind of marrying those two ideas together. Sure. Um, and we're going to talk about Harvard, and then we're going to compare it to how UNC used their admissions process as well. So really, the question overall was just, did uh, was race a factor in considerations for admissions? And what does that mean? Yes, it was used in both cases. And this is how this is kind of how it worked. So looking at the Harvard, uh, the Harvard lane and looking at the way Harvard used it, the application process was this. Uh, all applications are initially reviewed. They're all sent in and then they get to a place. Uh, the, the first admissions official that's going to read it is known as the first reader. And what they do is they read through the application and uh, they, they give the applicant a score in six different categories. So these six categories are going to be academic, extracurricular, athletics, school support, uh, a personal category, and then an overall category. And in each of these six categories, they're scored one through six, one being the lowest, six being the highest. Um, and then when we have that last category overall, that is kind of like a composite score. That's that's every, that's kind of like a, an average of all the other scores kind of put together. And so this overall score is going to be what this applicant is overall scored on. Um, so once that first read gets completed, it's then sent to a subcommittee for review. 
Um, and so this subcommittee takes all of that information that's been given to them, all of those ratings, and then they review and then recommend whether or not that applicant is going to be um, sent forward to kind of the full admissions committee. So they they make a recommendation that, say, that says, yes, we want you to look through it, or we really don't recommend that this person is Harvard material. We're gonna we're gonna reject this application. Right. And so then it goes to a full committee. And then in the full committee, it's a, a group of about 40 members that come together and they consider each applicant recommended for admission. And it's essentially you know, the third step, we've, we've gone through this tiered process. We have one person looking at it, then we have a smaller subsection of people looking at it. And then we have a larger section of people looking at these, this same information. Um, and in order for a person to pass this stage, the majority of the members of this full committee have to accept this application. Mm-hmm. Not everybody does, but a majority of it has to be there. So, um, what happens is of the applications that get accepted by the committee, um, they then create this kind of pool of tentative applicants. So we haven't even decided that these students are going to be admitted. They right. just kind of create this this larger chunk of of applicants that say all of these people are qualified to come to be to join our institution now we've got to we've got to kind of pare it down and so that's when we start to get um a percentage of racial uh, i don't even want to use the word disparities but like a, the the racial makeup of this tentative pool yeah. um and so then it leads to this i would say probably the final stage they call it the lop or the 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 way that they literally just kind of cut who is who is left so what they want to do is they take the tentatively accepted students right and then in addition to everything that's kind of been set up already they break it down into four more factors so we've got legacy status we've got recruited athlete status we've got financial eligibility status and then we have race And this is when race finally starts to play a role in the application process. So the pool of students that are admitted um, is then analyzed against all of these these four factors, as well as all the other academic and rigorous factors they've had getting to this point to determine their eligibility. And this leads to the lopping of applicants, which is going to lead to kind of a final acceptance for the students. We need to recognize race is one piece mm-hmm. of this whole process, and it's not even brought into brought into play until the very, very end. So, um, what's happening is this is you know this is exactly what the Supreme Court had kind of outlined right. for uh, universities in you know Gruder and Fisher. They had decided that. You know, you can use race, but it needs to be a piece. It needs to be kind of a consideration of an overall consideration. It's not right. just and, the and Harvard thing. didn't. Uh, Harvard didn't go and say that race was a bigger portion. It was just a portion. It was a, a consideration, right. right? Right. And and basically, what's what's playing in there is this idea that students who are otherwise incredible, like completely qualified to to join and be part of Harvard student body. Um, what the Supreme Court wanted us to do was to say that these of these students we want to have you we want schools to play the diversity game. We want we want to have a diverse student pool because that's going to um, increase academic rigor. It's going to make things more it's going to make it a better place to be just simply by being a diverse school. Um, And when we look at everything overall, what ends up happening is approximately of the entire admitted class, 10%, and that's give or take, Mm -hmm. um, 10% of those students are accepted 
in some form and fashion because of their race. Um, So this doesn't mean that they weren't qualified to be at Harvard. It just means that of the student pool, 10% of them were kind of that final deciding factor was was race. Well, it's not like it's not like you could be a a person of color and and be completely unqualified and still be given a position at Harvard. Like, right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, And so, you know, I just it's I think it needs to it kind of just needs to be said. Uh, that when we're we're talking about race in this fashion, um, the court has already decided that you can't just say we need a quota of you know ten percent African American, ten percent Hispanic, ten percent uh, whatever, and then you know reaching this quota that is a no no. Right. But in this case, uh, we're we're saying that you know in order to have a diverse student body, we have to think about that sometimes that's Mm -hmm. just kind of a thing we have to consider um and when we take that idea and then we kind of fashion it uh with unc uh it's it's very very similar and so with the unc admissions process race is a fraction of a fract or it's kind of a it's a factor of a factor is kind of the the legal term of art that's used when we talk about this and so we have 40 readers that assess the applicant that is in front of them and of all of the things that they're assessing their grades, their personal statements, their letters of recommendation, race and ethnicity becomes one factor. Um, But this also includes uh, academic performance, academic rigor, test scores, personal essays, essays from uh, recommendations, things like that. And the reader then rates them and recommends, uh, and recommends whether or not we they should be accepting that student. And then they provide an extra add to it. So, so let's say they have someone who they believe is very, very qualified. And then they also can add to that uh, analysis that, and by the way, this person also identifies as African-American or something like that. Sure. And then that gets, that gets sent off. So then an admission committee looks at those same factors. They look at the academic, they look at uh, kind of the academic scores. They look at their GPA. Um, But then they also look at other things that are going to give that applicant a leg up. And those ideas are going to be like being a North Carolina resident or uh, do they have a legacy status? Did family members go to the school or like recruitment status? Was this someone that got an academic scholarship? So are we going to accept them because they're going to be, they're going to make, a really great player on our football team or something like that. So as you can see, it's still race. Race is kind of, it's almost like we bake the cake of the applicant there. And then once that cake is finished, then we look at it and we're not just going to eat the cake. We've got to put our frosting on it. And that's when we start looking at those final factors. We start looking at race. We start looking at legacy. And part of the argument here is that not only do we have white students at fair admissions that are saying this is, you know, this is um, rate, this is a, this is creating an unfair advantage for for students of um, students of color, but there was also this argument that this was uh, negatively impacting Asian students, right. and the reason being. Uh, this was negatively in, impacting Asian students, not because of any of the other reasons, but but because when you look at their letters of recommendation, you look at their personal statements, there was kind of an argument that there's an implicit bias that these students aren't natural born leaders or these students aren't mm. um, aren't going to take risks. And that's that in some way negatively impacted them. The court doesn't really address it. But it's an argument that is made. Right. No, and they also, I mean, from what I understand, uh, the, the Students for Fair Admissions group, that they, they make this argument that, well, you know, Asian Americans generally get higher SAT scores. They perform better on, on testing. Uh, therefore, you know, how can the, the school uh, sort of excuse the fact that they're not admitting uh, Asian Americans at, at or how, how they're, they're denying those Asian American students who did better on the SAT scores and, and those other testing and, and GPA in general, and then admitting uh, other uh, students of color who, who may have less test scores. So that, that's, that's sort of what I, I remember 
uh, the being discussion about. Right, exactly that. And in, in a way, kind of taking that whole idea of the reason that affirmative action kind of exists in the first place and right. turning it on its head. Um, I can't necessarily speak to whether or not I believe that that can be true. Um, you know, as a former educator myself, I didn't, that's something that I can't say in my own biases that I thought about. Um, but I also can't say that it's not true. Um, so I, I wish when we get to the opinion, I wish there was something that, that the Supreme court wanted to, uh, kind of address there, but it, it didn't really happen. So, um, then what ends up, so, so we've got this process and this is the process that is in question. Um, so it gets, it makes its way all the way up to the Supreme court. Yep. And when we are kind of preparing for argument at the Supreme court, what happens kind of in this in-between time is we get this stuff sent in as, that are called amicus briefs. And amicus is just this, this word that literally translates to friend of the court. What it is, is an opportunity for people who support one side or the other of any sort of case that goes to trial, um, that, uh, that goes to kind of goes to SCOTUS. And it says that these, the, these are some considerations that we want you to be thinking about, mm. even if it might not be part of the facts of the case, we want you to think about some of these things. Um, and then the court can kind of decide what they want to do with it. They can, they can use it in their considerations. They can kind of just have it there. It's really, it's really kind of up to them. What do they, what they do? And there were 33 different amicus briefs filed um, and they, they were on both sides. Uh, on the sides of students for fair admissions, one of the things that was argued was that we need to look at this case because uh, opinions like Gruder, which is the case that basically said, we can use race when we are admitting students. Um, as a factor. As a factor, uh, was inconsistent when we're talking about equal protection. So this leads us to kind of what's going to happen in the actual opinion when we're talking about equal protection analysis. So equal protection analysis, what is that? Um, it, is a, it is a test by the Supreme Court uh, and really kind of the lower courts too, I guess you should say. It's not just the Supreme Court, but it's, um, it's a test that looks to the Constitution. And it says that based on uh, the Fifth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, that we cannot, as a government, what is the, I'm, the word escapes me, we cannot, as a government, um, discriminate against individuals for any particular reason. There cannot be a very particular reason for discrimination unless that discrimination has some sort of interest. Right. Now, the thing is, the way that we use equal protection is that it is tiered. So it, it has three tiers or three levels that we look at. And depending right. on the, the status that is being discriminated against, we use one of these tiers. So one of them, one of the lowest tier is called, um, you know, rational basis, which right. basically just, uh, and that is, that is for a set of people that are being discriminated against. Usually that's going to be something like, um, you know, are we going to have, is, is it okay for a government to, you know, uh, prefer contracts with, I don't know, state agents or something like that. Sure. That's going to be rational basis. And what, what the argument there is, is that the government needs to have a rational reason why they're discriminating the way that they are. Right. That's a really low, that's a really low bar. Low bar. It's really easy to satisfy rational basis. Then we go into what's called intermediate scrutiny. Um, intermediate scrutiny is this idea that um, there is a class of people that needs a little bit more protection and we need to have more than just a rational basis for discriminating against these, these types of people. Usually we're gonna use rational base, we're gonna, excuse me, we're gonna use uh, intermediate scrutiny when we're talking about gender discrimination. Right. Um, things like that, that's gonna be where, it's not, it's not necessarily just okay to have a good reason. You have to have a really good reason. Right. And then 
we've got this third basis, which is called strict scrutiny. Um, and what needs to happen there is the government needs to have what is known as a compelling interest yep. in the reason for them to be discriminating. Um, race always, always, always gets strict scrutiny. Strict right. scrutiny almost always fails. Um, usually there is very little reason as to why you would discriminate based on race. And we just happened to have decided that race in admissions was one of those things that passes strict scrutiny right. in the past. Sure. And, um, and so the whole reason behind that, and we kind of talked about this in the last episode is that, you know, part of the reason that we have affirmative action is the, the reasons kind of split depending on who you're asking. People who are really in support of affirmative action truly believe that we are discriminating against these people for the, the particular reason of racism is bad. There are people who have suffered from racism historically. Uh, if we think about the civil rights movement of the United States, I mean, that is the reason, like that, that was an atrocity on African-Americans in our country. And so it's kind of a way to fix that wrong, right. kind of right the wrong that happened there. Right. And, and that's and one side to be uh, slightly fitting, uh, obviously, with, with uh, her sad passing. Justice O'Connor wrote uh, previously that um, though, you know, she wrote previously that affirmative action is something that is 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 necessary and uh, race to be used as a factor in uh, admissions, uh, though she wasn't a fan of it necessarily. She understood and wrote about its importance considering our history uh, uh, where, you know, uh, people of color had did not have access to education, a uh, higher education. So, yeah, I mean, this is something that has been uh, built up for a long time. And and but I guess the the sort of hard part about it is just O'Connor wrote that yes, it's important. Yes, we should do it uh, until it's fixed. Until we're done. Until we've we've finished. Right. You pulled the words right out of my mouth because I was going to hit that. You know, we've got the one side that says you know affirmative action is going to be helpful because. It is something that that bolsters this idea that Americans, America was wrong when it when it was discriminating against people of color. And right. this is the way that we can fix it. And then you can look at the other side that says affirmative action is good because diversity is good. Right. We don't need to look at it as, you know, writing a wrong. We need to look at it as like diversity is just good for everybody. And that's why we should have it. And that is exactly uh, what uh, Justice O'Connor said in the Grutter opinion is what she right. said was, you know, we should have this as a way to fix this, to right this wrong for now, but right. eventually race isn't going to be a problem anymore. And then we're not going to need to use it. What I find particularly interesting about this is that she even said in the opinion that, um, 25 years from now, this isn't going to be a problem anymore. And here we are 20 years later. Right. And it's happened. So it's like, call her Nostradamus because she figured, she must have figured that. Yeah. Or, or I don't know, maybe there was some sort of time. There was some, she had some sort of like time bomb sitting in the Supreme Court ready to well, go. It, it's, um, almost, it's almost sad in a way because you, you think about it and you're like, you know, maybe when she wrote that opinion, maybe it would have made sense to think that in 30 years, uh, it would have been better, but I think we're we're seeing that it's it it really uh, hasn't gotten that much better, um, especially in education. And and after this opinion, it's only going to get worse. It, you know, and and this is just kind of personally speaking, and I think sure. this is kind of this is kind of the logical fallacy of of race based discussions and race based kind of issues is this idea that racism and the discussion of racism and the way that kind of race plays a role in everyday life makes people really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And especially, uh, I mean, just speaking from my own privilege, it makes white people really uncomfortable. And so you have a white woman in a huge, with a huge level of power, recognizing that there is a wrong done that needs to be fixed, but that eventually that, that, that wrong isn't going to be a problem anymore. And it's wishful thinking. And I think it's, I think it's, there's nothing wrong with that level of thinking, but 
it's so much more complicated than that. And I do feel like that is, I talked about it last time. I kind of talk about it every single time Justice O'Connor comes up is this is kind of the dance that she plays that she used to play as a Supreme court justice is that she was mostly a conservative justice. And then there were ideas that get thrown around that are progressive and kind of play to like the, the way that society has kind of shifted and she recognizes and accepts it, but she kind of like does it at like total arm's length. So like here she's saying, you know, like, I think racism is bad. I think racism has done bad things, but diversity is going to fix that and diversity is going to solve that. And we won't need to worry about this in 25 years. And that's just kind of like the, that's the, I don't know, the Sandra Day O'Connor, like tango that she likes to do in her opinions. She does that. She did that with, um, with anti-sodomy laws saying that, you know, we could sodomy, anti-sodomy laws are good for everybody, but we can't do it if we're just discriminating against one group of people. So it's just kind of, it's just something to notice. Yeah, sure. I think. But, and it opens the doors, you, right? It opens right. the doors for uh, overturning decisions. I mean, that line right. essentially right. gives the Supreme Court authority in the future to say, well, hey, well, here's this very well-known justice who said this could one day not apply. And this is the perfect example. Right. Precisely. And, and I think that leads us to the opinion itself, right? Sure. So we, we look at, um, we look at the majority opinion. This was penned by Justice Roberts. So Chief Justice John Roberts um, came to the court or came with the opinion that affirmative action is not only inappropriate, but it kind of flies in the face of this whole idea of equal protection. And right. so what what he what he really gets at, and I, I think it's important for us to really, when we're talking about this as a greatest hit, not necessarily diving into the deep legal arguments, which tons of scholars have already done and are going to continue to do, but really get into what is kind of the point, the point of what is being made here. And the point in the majority is saying that discriminating against race is bad, regardless of how you do it. And in the in the opinion there is kind of even a recognition that affirmative action was a form of discrimination with the best of intentions but what they're saying at the end of the day is that discrimination on one group of people is discrimination and discrimination is bad and we have to we have to say based on our equal protection analysis based on strict scrutiny standards this cannot be a compelling government interest. This can't be a reason why we allow for um, the discrimination. And and even this is almost, I, I, I almost getting into like the ideas of psychology. This is almost like deficit thinking that like, we're not looking at this as a way of um, kind of identifying and looking at uh looking at diversity from the lens of race, but instead we're looking at it as discrimination of very specific groups of people. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that in and in in and of itself is kind of, it's kind of a difficult and slippery slope. Um, Yeah, no, and I think something that really struck me about the opinion was he basically wrote that he, the court could not find, they could not see a, a real reason, a, a motivational objective uh, for why you use race as a factor. I mean, they they, they didn't see, you know, I, I remember listening to the oral arguments and you have Justice Thomas over and over and over and over again asking, well, what's the benefit? Like what, you know, why is it getting better? What are you improving? You know, and at any time, uh, you know, the, the, you know, the, the attorney arguing would, would for, for Harvard would say, well, you know, we get more diversity, we get more thought, you know, Justice Thomas would very quickly go to, well, so you're saying that if someone has a different race, that they're automatically entitled to a different thought. And he was saying that that's, that would never be allowed. So I guess, you know, I think that was interesting was they threw out, I think the, the, the majority opinion really throughout this idea that like using factors and admission 
uh, in admissions decisions to them uh, has no objective. It, it, it's simply just using race to use race. Um, and I thought that that was that was definitely troubling. And, you know, that's that's really interesting because it also kind of plays into we again, we talked about this in the last episode. But, you know, when we talk about affirmative action and we talk about that disparity between the two camps, there's, you know, we're fighting for diversity or we're fighting for, you know, righting a wrong. And then we kind of come to this conclusion that, well, it's really important for college campuses to have a you know pool of diverse people on its campuses. And in that ways. In that way, it's kind of like nobody's truly being honest about the reason why affirmative action kind of exists. And I think this is kind of, especially the conservative side of the court, kind of recognizing that and saying that, well, you know, we're still discriminating. And so I I do, what you said kind of makes me want to look at a specific line that Justice Roberts wrote when he talked specifically about equal protection. And he said, um, you know, the 14th Amendment and equal protection applies without regard to any difference of race, of color, or of nationality. And that eliminating racial discrimination means eliminating all of it. And so it, it really is this hard line push that race, when we talk about race, it's going to be bad because it just means we're going to talk about discrimination. Um, right. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I don't think I don't think that argument is necessarily all that strong. I right. think there's a lot more nuance to it. But again, I think this also plays into, you know, the big argument behind critical race theory, which is a legal principle. Just this idea that like thinking critically about the way we view race in the law is is you know we have part of that is recognizing and accepting the the pernicious parts of of racism that you know racism exists and and we have to we don't need to be okay with it but we need to accept the fact that racism is a thing and it's not necessarily it's not it wasn't necessarily intended to make things explode the way that it did but it also is kind of built in the bedrock of a nation that, you know, built it, built itself on slavery and things like that. Sure. Yeah. I think, and I think going to your point, like the, your previous point about the psychology, like I think this line, the line that you, you said sort of shows that the court got hit with this, you know, these fact pattern, this admissions process. And when they saw race in the admissions process, they automatically assumed that it must be discrimination. When I don't, I think that's the point is that I am not even sure after reading it that it's actually discrimination. You know, I, I think we we talk a lot about how, you know, and this sort of goes into what you were saying, like having, you know, your race and, and your identity plays a part in the way in which you grew up, in the way in which you experience the world and the way in which you interact with people. Uh, and it can have a, it, it can, it can also not, but it can also have a a significant way in the which you develop as a human being. And I think that's, what the admissions process was seeking, right? There, this idea that, well, you know, if, if you're a, a, an African-American growing up in, you know, uh, the, the deep South, your life experiences are going to be very different than that of a, of, of a you know, a Caucasian uh, individual living in the Northeast. It's just, it's different experiences, just as uh, the, the 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 you know the high school student who's who's Caucasian in the in the Northeast may have other different experiences that the African American male in the Steep South doesn't have. So I think it it, it it's interesting uh, that you said before that when you know we talk about race we immediately go to rather than just talking about it from from just a a societal point of view we immediately go to wow someone must be discriminated against someone and I think that played a significant part here. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of a very abbreviated way that uh, we kind of look at we look at the case. And so I think this is this fits really nicely into kind of our play on on greatest hits is that, you know, there may not have been necessarily a story that one person was completely they, they were completely denied admission to Harvard simply because they were, you know, somebody's race. But because of all of the stories that we told last time, sure. it led us to it led us 
to this very issue that that was brought to the court over the last over the summer. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the story in and of itself is kind of kind of lies in the data. It, it, it plays it plays out in the way that like it's, it's almost like the story there is the application and the applicant itself is sure. is what is there. And where did where did race and and race, racial racial relations rear its ugly head? Well, it, it showed up here. So that's how it works. And so now basically what's what's being decided is that race cannot be a factor. No. One of the things that I found quite interesting is that there was they they I don't even want to say it was a loophole, but it was kind of their way of saying like Justice uh Justice Roberts kind of explained in his um in his majority that race shouldn't be a factor. However, what we want, like race can be used if someone is explaining how their experience led them to where they are now. And I think it was almost kind of their way of saying like, this is what we meant. We actually meant it to to work like this, not like anything else. And it's funny because it plays exactly into what you were saying that it's like, you know, the experience of one person of a black person living in the deep South is much different than a white person living in new England. Um, And what they were, what they're kind of recognizing is like, yeah, there's differences, but like, that's not a reason why we should, we, that's not a reason why we should admit people is just that. Yeah. It's it's almost like they, they, the court doesn't want schools to ask them to talk about that. They sort of want the, they want the applicants to just write it themselves. And then if they write it themselves, then it's okay to look at it as a, as a factor. Right. But you, the, the school can't do it themselves. And I thought right. that loop hole was very interesting to me because it's, it's almost saying like, we, we can't have our, our institution, you know, Harvard is, is arguably the most famous institution, academic institution in, in the world. And it's sort of saying like, we, we, we just sort of want them to be quiet. And then if a student brings it up, that's okay. But otherwise we don't bring it up at all. We don't talk about it. It's just that the student wants to talk about it. And I, I thought that was, uh, that was, that was really, really troubling. Right. But what we're learning now is sure. that this focuses on school admissions. And I do want to be clear in kind of the distinction here. So like I said, at, up top is that this was a combination case of both Harvard's admissions and UNC. And so there is there is a nuanced difference between the two institutions that I think we need to draw attention to. Harvard is a private school yeah. and UNC is a state university. So it would be considered like a public or a state school. Okay. Um, and when we're looking at those two concepts, um, we look at e- what the court decided was that equal protection plays a role in both rules. However, um, the way that they came to the Supreme Court was just slightly different. Um, UNC is going to be governed by the Constitution because it is a state school, right? So the equal protection clause of the Constitution is going to be is going to be at play, and that is why they brought it they brought it the way that they did um, sure. as an equal protection issue uh, under the Constitution. Harvard, as a private institution, is not governed by those same rules, but what but at the same time, because they are a college, they are receiving federal funds. And what happens there is there is a measure known as Title VI, which um, is one of its provisions is anti-discrimination. And so in order for Harvard to continue receiving federal funds, one of the things they had to do was not discriminate based on race. So that is why, that is how they both kind of played a role, a role up to this point. Um, but I think you made a very astute um, observation about, you know, Harvard is the name that's going to get people to go, ooh, I need to follow this. Not necessarily UNC. Not saying that UNC is not a good school, not saying that of UNC course, is, not, right. yeah. is not worthy of the accolades, but it's going to it's going to turn a lot more heads when we look at it from a perspective of, of look at this Ivy League school and the way that they may or may not be discriminating against people. With that, we're seeing now, though, public institutions or, you know, private businesses and, um, you know, other places outside of, you know, academia are now 
looking at race and racial admissions and things and diversity initiatives. And this very case is kind of influencing the way they move forward. Do you have anything to say about that? Sure. I mean, yeah. So I think the the obviously I'm, I'm glad you brought up the point that North Carolina is a public school because it sort of shows that that no public school or I mean, no school in general is is safe from this ruling, uh, even if they're if whether they're public or whether they're private. Uh, it really doesn't matter um, if they take federal funds, they're going to uh, have to abide by the ruling. But as you said, it has also an implication on um, outside of academics and more into just employment contexts um, and the attorney for the student forward fair admissions group uh, has sort of made it his personal mission uh, to take down any diversity program in the country and and in most corporate programs especially since the uh, the murder of George Floyd uh, they corporate programs created these diversity employment uh, initiatives where um, diverse applicants would get to uh, sort of talk about their experiences and how it relates to why they should get a job at a certain company. And this has been very common in, in, in law firms. Uh, as, as we know, law firms uh, are, well, the legal industry in general is probably the farthest behind uh, in terms of diversity um, and a way of alleviating that similar to it, how it alleviated college admissions was to have diversity programs where diverse students, first-generation students, students of color, students from low-income backgrounds could apply and and get the same opportunities that historically uh, those who have parents who are attorneys or, you know, white individuals who grew up in in, in, uh, more wealthy areas of the world, they get the same opportunities regardless. Now, this ruling immediately started a firestorm uh, and, and there were countless law firms and and countless news uh, sort of news articles coming out about how corporate DI programs are now in trouble. And that's essentially because the same, uh, it, it, as you said, it was like immediately you'd be like, well, corporate corporations are private companies. So why would this have an impact on them? And I guess the, the reality is that it is under the same provisions, under the same laws, it is also illegal to discriminate uh, based on race in an employment context, it's it's illegal to promote someone because they are of a certain race. It's illegal to hire someone in generally because they are a certain race. Um, it you know the the so and Gorsuch in in his concurring opinion, uh, Justice Gorsuch, he sort of stated that he is eager to see how this plays out in an employment context. Um, and I think it it is troubling. And and you've had law firms now, uh, all a number of large law firms in the United States have started initiatives. Now, where they'll just be working with uh, academic institutions to try to alleviate this issue uh, or working with private companies to try and protect them from litigation. Uh, and it's even something as uh, to, to sort of make it more personal. You know, and I'm sure, Andy, you're, you're familiar with them. You know, law firms, especially big law firms, they have affinity groups. And there's these, you know, these cultural groups where uh, lawyer, you know, these big firms that have well over a thousand attorneys, uh, you know, lawyers of a certain race or of a certain ethnic background or of a shared experience can sort of create a group and they meet once a month usually and, and talk about things going on in their, you know, their, their culture or, or their group or whatever in the community. Um, and the reality is that that is one of the things that is at most uh, in danger here. And that's because a company is essentially saying a group within the company. You cannot even touch a group within the company because you're not of a certain race. Now, that's obviously not the reality, but that's what's being said. And now you're having a lot of these law firms getting rid of these programs, uh, getting rid of these affinity groups, and instead saying now that if you agree with the mission of the group, you can come in. And you know that is an issue for a number of reasons, um, but it's it's... That's how it's affecting. It's affecting law firms and corporate uh, sort of corporate entities internally. And it's also affecting with hiring. Now, uh, the the same attorney for the Students for Admissions brought lawsuits against numerous big law, uh, law firms alleging that their diversity hiring programs uh, violate uh, the, the, uh, the United States uh, laws and, and sort of show that you're, they're discriminating. And as a result, 
almost every single one of those law firms has now changed the criteria for applying to those programs, making it much more broad that essentially if you have had any, I, you know, I, I don't really know the right word, but if you have any sort of challenge in your, in your life, you can talk about it. So very similar to saying, we're not going to say race, but the student applying can say race. Right. So it's, it's, I think though it, it, it would be, I think uh, hasty to say that corporate DEI programs are, somehow like never now going to be allowed again. I, you know, I think that that could be a little bit of hysteria, but it is, I think, true to say it's affected people. And and the last thing I'll end off with um, is that, you know, after George Floyd's murder, we saw immense amounts of DEI hiring. I and mean, we saw almost a whole industry open with DEI professionals, those who are interested in growing and understanding and researching how DEI can affect a corporate environment, you know, a law firm or whatever. Um, now, since this decision, uh, the chief diversity officer position has declined by significant, significant amounts. Uh, one in three DEI professionals in the corporate world were let go as a result of decisions like this, uh, because it's no longer deemed to be, um, important. And not only that, but it's almost deemed to open up a corporate environment to litigation. Uh, and, and that's troubling. So it's not only affecting um, internal mechanisms within a, a corporate entity, it's also affecting people. And people are let go, people's livelihoods are being uh, destroyed because of a decision like this. So um, it, it, it has wide implications. And, and I think it, it'll be interesting to see how DEI programs and employment sort of continue to evolve. I, I find that interesting um, because, you know, I think when we argue against things like DEI programs or affinity groups, we are missing, we're not seeing the forest for the trees. Um, I think when we look at it that way, the point of a DEI program, I think sometimes the point of an affinity group tells us that um, we need to there is, we're creating a space for a set of people who have shared experiences to share how their shared experience is then influencing the way they experience the workplace. Um, And part of my experience with affinity groups is that it's not that people are being pushed out or not being allowed in. Um, It's it's an idea that there needs to be like a shared level of respect that they, that we need to recognize that there is a group of people here um, that all carry similar values and have carry similar experiences and others are welcome to be there with respect to the fact that you may not share that experience. And if anything, it's more rich to have those kinds of things there. Um, So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out especially seeing um seeing that whole that whole point in Gorsuch's con- concurrence about I'm interested I'm eager to see how this plays out in business um because even DEI programs aren't necessarily saying we're hiring people for the particular reason of we don't want white people we don't want white men we don't want right. whatever to be to be um working in our pla- working in our establishments but instead saying that we have a lack of this group of people, we want to find as many ways as we can to get those voices and get those bodies into our institutions, not simply because of who they are, but because they are otherwise completely qualified. Um, So interesting, interesting, because that very much parallels exactly what's happening here. I think it's, you know, sort of the last point on it you know the, the problem is that litigation in general is expensive i mean it's incredibly expensive i mean i don't even want to understand how much it costs to get to the case of the supreme court so um going in the future you know the guy the, the attorney that that represented the students for fair admissions group and that's currently suing a bunch of law firms you know he you know the problem is is he knows and that that group his group knows that if they challenge someone that firm or that corporate entity or whatever, that school would rather just change the criteria than go through the litigation. 
There's like that, and then that's sort of what I I will I would predict it happening is is we've seen it with every law firm they've challenged so far. Every law firm they've challenged has immediately changed the criteria to their diversity application or their affinity groups within the firm. And I I unfortunately think that this is what's going to set us back is that no one's going to want to actually fight them. No one's going to want to take them to a court and and, and really see this out. Um, or, or it's going to be done in so many years that by then we've erased a lot of the diversity, uh, that we've managed to accomplish in the last sort of 10 years. Um, so that'll, that'll be interesting to see, but I do think that, you know, the, 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 the attorneys that are fighting for, or that are fighting against these, these programs, they, they know that they have the upper hand. Um, and it'll be, uh, it'll be interesting to see how when when they're over when they end um and or when they're you know i think it'll be telling for the world when the statistics regarding uh, the diversity within whatever field let's talk about the legal industry when these when these hiring programs are removed or their criteria is changed i think it'll be interesting to see how the numbers change um and i i i think the, the my last point would be i think it's also a fallacy to believe that these law firms that are getting these applications that they're not considering the applicant's race. Uh, you know, the, the applicant may write a, a whole statement on how their experience being a black man in, you know, in new England was, was um, challenging. And for these reasons, and that's what makes me a better candidate. Of course, the, you know, the recruiting committee or the hiring committee looking at that would look at that and be like, race is playing a part in my decision. Um, and I think it's it's truly it's a shame that that has to be now behind closed doors, those discussions. It can't just be put out loud that we're OK talking about it. But anyway, uh, that's that's for my rant on the issue. No, this is great. I had a, I think this was a great conversation. I really I'm really glad that we got to sit down and, and do this. I think this is this is a nice. Just one pair of people's opinions, but, you know, it's it's a nice uh, discussion. So thank you for that. Yeah, no, thanks, sir. Uh, thanks for joining me. And, um, yeah, thank you to, uh, everyone listening for tuning in. Uh, really appreciate your time and, uh, we'll see you in the next one. Right.